This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books and Gender and Sexuality Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado and I'll be your host for this episode. And today... I'm talking to Dr. Stephen K. Stein about his new book, Sadomasochism and the BDSM Community in the United States, Kinky People Unite, which was published by Routledge in 2021. The first comprehensive history of this subject, the book chronicles the development of sadomasochistic sexuality and its communities in the United States from the post-war period to the present day. Associate Chair of the Department of History at the University of Memphis, Dr. Stein works in the histories of the U.S. military, technology, and more recently, the history of sexuality. He has written on topics ranging from ancient battles to aviation and the iPod. His other books include From Torpedoes to Aviation, Washington Irving Chambers and Technological Innovation in the New Navy, The Sea in World History, Trade, Travel, and Exploration, and 25 Years of Living in Leather, the National Leather Association. Steve, welcome to New Books and Gender and Sexuality Studies. Oh, thank you. I'm happy to be here. So if you're familiar at all with NBN interviews, uh, our first question, we usually ask our guests to introduce themselves, tell us a bit about their careers and their trajectories. I am asking you that, but I must first make a confession. I was a PhD student there at the History Department of the University of Memphis, and was very recently back there as a postdoctoral fellow, so we were colleagues, but I had no clue that you were a fellow sexualities historian. I only associated you with military and technology history until I you know, found out about this book. So yes, I would like you to tell us a bit about your trajectory, but I'm particularly curious about how and when did you begin your work in this particular subject? I started out as a, as a military historian. I did my uh, doctoral work uh, back in the 90s at Ohio State, uh, which is uh, very well known for its military history program. I worked with uh, Alan Millette and Joe Gilmartin, a number of the other military historians there, uh, working on kind of technology in the U.S. Navy, uh, the professionalization of the Naval Officer Corps, the beginnings of naval aviation, yeah, which was my dissertation and became my first book. Uh, I've been at University of Memphis about 20 years now. And the person that got me involved in the uh, in, in the history of the BDSM community is a person I met fairly early uh, in my career, and that's uh, Jan Hall, and who's mentioned in the book. Um, she contacted me uh, back when she worked for one of the uh, the big textbook publishers. I forget uh, which one, uh, but she needed someone to do. Um, kind of textbook reviews uh, to make sure they're passing state standards. Uh, at that time, I was, I think I was still working as an adjunct uh, at the University of Memphis before I'd kind of clawed my way into an instructorship and then onto the tenure track. Uh, so I did that work for Jan, um, kind of going over all these kind of high school textbooks uh, and writing out, filling out the reports they needed to submit them to the state uh, school boards. 
And then many, many uh, years later, uh, she contacted me. And what she'd seen is that a lot of the kind of the very important people uh, in the BDSM community had died or were in poor health. Uh, Jan was actually president of the National Leather Association in the late 90s, uh, which, you know, I didn't, you know, know at the time when I, when I first met her. So um, she had all these contacts and she was, uh, she was watching people die and she wanted kind of the history preserved. And she remembered me and, uh, and, and contacted me. And that's how I got involved in, uh, in uh, the first book, uh, 25 Years of Living in Leather. Uh, they wanted an official history of the National Leather Association, uh, which I wrote. Uh, and then having done that uh, for them, which, which turned out to be a, a much more involved project than I'd originally thought it would be, it made sense to me to, you know, since I had all these contacts in the community, I'd already done the research to, uh, to kind of to move further afield. And I was quite surprised to kind of see that historians have virtually uh, ignored kind of the leather community, the BDSM organizations, and so on, that we've, uh, we've left this for social scientists to write. Uh, so for me, it's, it's a unique opportunity, right? As a, as a military historian, I'm, you know, in a fairly competitive field where, you know, my friends are writing, you know, the next book about, you know, whichever battle already has 10 books about it. So it was, uh, it was a lot of fun to go in and be uh, pretty much the first person um, the first historian, at least, kind of looking at these groups. Before we get into the actual history that you're covering here on this book, could you please walk us through some of the basic definitions and terminology? I think many of us still confuse or conflate BDSM, SNM, leather, DNS. Tell us why you decided to use BDSM throughout the book. How do you define and use the term here? Okay, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, and, and BDSM has become a popular term for a number of reasons, and I think not least of which is that it's the term the community itself uh, has embraced. Uh, and, and these come out of prolonged, prolonged debates uh, within BDSM organizations uh, about what they wanted to be called. Um, they early on rejected sadomasochism and, and, you know, because that seemed to them to kind of represent uh, someone like Jack the Ripper, right? Criminal, uh, non-consensual violence. Uh, and they experimented with all sorts of terms. Uh, S&M, as you mentioned, uh, sometimes SM or S slash M. Um, other people uh, wanted to get away from, right, the sadomasochism in general. So uh, dominance and submission uh, was popular for a while. Uh, DNS or D slash S and another term that was popular for a while was bondage and discipline. Um, you know, SM and DS were by and large used by early uh, BDSM organizations. Bondage and discipline was a term favored by professional dominatrixes. So you'd see it in, in classified ads, right? People would advertise interest in or, or services of bondage and discipline. Uh, so all these terms and, and several others were floating around for a while. Uh, some people pushed uh, restraint and pleasure for a while, R&P. And we get BDSM largely because of the internet, that in the early alt.sex.whatever, um, right, the early Usenet groups, uh, a lot of leading members of the BDSM community participated and argued about these terms, uh, repeating debates that had already begun 
uh, in the early SM organizations like uh, like the Society of Janus, uh, founded in uh, in San Francisco in the mid seventies, uh, had a lot of these debates. Uh, and at some point, and I don't know anyone's ever going to kind of nail it down exactly. People, someone just suggested, well, let's just ram all these through. So you get BDSM uh, because it's seen to include B and D, bondage and discipline. Uh, DNS, right, dominance and submission, uh, and then right the old term S and M, S slash M, and such. So, um, so that's BDSM. And I went back and forth. Uh, different drafts of this uh, book use different uh, terms because for most of the period I write about, S slash M uh, was the preferred term. Uh, but it's awkward uh, when you're writing, as you can imagine. Um, and it has fallen out of favor. Um, you know, it's uh, at least early on, BDSM had very much a, uh, a straight connotation, uh, whereas gays and lesbians who were doing the same things uh, often preferred to, to associate themselves uh, uh, with a leather community and call, you know, refer to themselves as leather men or, or leather dykes. Uh, right, tying into kind of a larger group, only some of whose members uh, engage in BDSM activities. Uh, but they too, over time, have kind of embraced it. So it made sense to me uh, to use BDSM, and, and simply because increasingly um, that's what other people around me. Um, I was quite surprised, and one of our colleagues at University of mentioned you know, at University of Memphis kind of walked by and said, "So, Steve, you're now you know, researching BDSM, right?" So the term is. Uh, the term is out. It's what people are using. Uh, it's what the community uh, has embraced. So it, uh, it just seemed the way to go. Uh, and of course, for the title, uh, you know, I went back and forth at the publisher on titles. And the idea was to get as many Amazon search terms into the title as possible. I suspect that's true of, of most authors these days. <laughs> But tell me a bit about your research process. Uh, which sources did you use? Where did you find them? And was this any different from your previous research on more, uh, for the lack of a better term, mainstream topics? Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, very very different. Uh, first off, you know, I had some oral history that I could I, I could meet and, and talk to some of these people. I talked to Jan Lyon, one of the founders of the National Leather Association, shortly before she died. Of course, I could talk to Jan Hall and and some other people, um, and, and cross check things that way. Um, I made a lot more use of magazines. Um, you know, the BDSM community, uh, especially in the 80s and 90s, had a remarkable amount of uh, magazines and, and, and other publications coming out uh, that I could dive into, particularly Drummer, uh, aimed at the larger male leather community, uh, but of course, specifically aimed at BDSM, our Dungeon Master magazine, uh, founded by Tony DeBlas, and then he later launched uh, Sam Utopia Guardian, uh, S&M Utopia Guardian. Uh, which was aimed at uh, at a pansexual audience uh, for everyone. So uh, there's a, a very rich, you know, amount of information in in uh, these magazines, uh, club newsletters, and zines. Uh, and there is, in fact, an archive that uh, uh, that has stored some of these things. It's the Leather Archives and Museum uh, in uh, in Chicago, uh, which began essentially as a dream by Tony de Blas. He's this very central figure in the community, uh, publishing books and magazines, running his own uh, uh, SM toy company for a while. 
Uh, but out of his archives, uh, this larger archive developed, uh, which has uh, a lot of uh, resources there. It's got the, uh, the records, the National Leather Association, records of a number of other uh, organizations. So in that sense, it's an archive, and an archive is an archive. Uh, what was interesting about this, it's not true so much anymore, but when I was first there, uh, they were just getting started. So I actually got to go through unprocessed boxes and uh, you know, liter- completely unprocessed boxes. So I would, you know, I'd open up a box and, you know, there'd be what I was looking for, um, you know, a club newsletter or, you know, minutes of an important meeting or something. But right next to it would be page proofs for a magazine, uh, photographs from their latest uh, dungeon party, um, all mixed together. Um so that made it a little different than the Library of Congress or the uh, the National Archives. That sounds fascinating. Uh, you write here that the BDSM community demonstrates how a minority sexual community can pursue sexual citizenship. I think this is an important and interesting concept. Could you talk a bit, explain what is sexual citizenship? Ah, well, I, I suspect uh, you know different scholars would give you uh, uh, different definitions, but but fundamentally, it, it's uh, uh, at least for members of the BDSM community, they want to be able to be out about their sexuality for it to be public. Uh, and it's very important to some of them, and not suffer any repercussions for that. Uh, not fear for uh, losing custody of their children, uh, which was very common and happened to a number of leading figures in the community. Not suffer career. Uh, problems, uh, to be able to have their play parties and not have them raided by the police, uh, which was uh, routine through the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, these parties had to be uh, arranged in secret. So yeah, it's, it's a, full, a full and public participation uh, in society. Um, and others would go so far as to say without, you know, people looking down on them, right? That, that you know, BDSM would be you know, as, as accepted and, uh, and would not raise eyebrows um, as, you know, playing golf or participating in, in football games or other kind of vigorous sports. They, uh, they frequently make that comparison uh, that you can get a lot, you know, a lot more injured in a football game than you're going to get, you know, at the average uh, BDSM dungeon play party. So let's get into the, the, the history here. Tell us how this story begins. Uh, I would like to know about the early process of building BDSM networks. Okay. Um, Yeah, and that's that was uh, one of the decisions had to make with this book is when to start because of course people have been engaging in these activities uh, for a while. Certainly back into the nineteenth, eighteenth, you know, century. Right? We can find European bordellos that specialized in flagellation. Right? People who wrote admiringly about it. But the beginnings of the community, as you mentioned, kind of this early networking, is just getting started before World War II, uh, and the war shuts it down in a whole host of ways. Um, and then it picks back up again after the war. And, uh, and one of the more interesting figures is uh, John Coots, who wrote in the name John Willie, uh, who came to the United States uh, from Australia, already part of a, uh, of a network of people interested in bondage and other BDSM play. Um, and he got connected uh, via friends in Australia to people who shared his interest in New York. Uh, and he launched one of the first uh, publications um, aimed at kind of fetishists, sadomasochists, uh, called Bizarre. 
and his success inspired um, other people to launch similar magazines, particularly uh, Leonard Bertman, uh, who's a much more successful businessman uh, than John Coots was, who launched Exotique and several others. Uh, and these early business people, these early publishers, began attracting people around them. Uh, and these magazines eventually allowed uh, uh, personal ads to be placed so that people could find each other. Uh, and it begins uh, a process of networking uh, as people across, at least throughout the English-speaking world, which is kind of where my kind of research was centered, uh, could find each other. And at least in these early days, one gets the sense that these were probably upper middle class people, right? People who could travel uh, to meet each other, to arrange, uh, you know, small gatherings, uh, even either one-on-one or perhaps, you know, small groups. And these ads became more uh, um, common over time. What particularly uh, caught me by surprise uh, was that there used to be a publication in Canada uh, called Justice Weekly, uh, whose Nominally was about criminal justice reporting and yet another one of these kind of like true crime uh, publications, uh, except it didn't censor its, uh, its adult ads, its classified ads in any way. So increasingly, people with diverse sexual interests began advertising in, uh, in Justice Weekly, right? Um, you know, swingers, right? People interested in BDSM, uh, gays and lesbians looking for friends and so on. Uh, is diverse uh, people of diverse sexualities, um, and these uh, these connections eventually. And, and I wish I could kind of you know nail down exactly when or, or why, uh, but these networks eventually blossom into organizations. Uh, just a few at first, and they all form uh, the early 1970s. Uh, in New York, it's Eulenspiegel Society, uh, which uh, later just adopts its initials uh, uh, TESS as its name. Uh, because so many people had trouble pronouncing Eulenspiegel, I imagine. Society of Janus uh, forms in San Francisco a few years later, 1974. Uh, and in between them in Chicago, uh, the Chicago Hellfire Club uh, forms, which uh, uh, Janus and Tess were open to everybody um, and had uh, early on, right, straight members, uh, gay members, lesbian members. Uh, Chicago Hellfire Club was men's only uh, and very much coming out of the... Uh, uh, out of the tradition, you know, relatively recent tradition, uh, obviously, of, uh, of gay motorcycle clubs, right? So it had adopted the trappings of these fraternal uh, leather organizations. Uh, and unlike Janus and Tess, which advertised, uh, Chicago Hellfire Club uh, operated almost as, as a secret organization. They didn't publicize themselves. You found out a bit by uh, word of mouth. You know, and, and these organizations eventually inspire others. I was really fascinated by your uh, description of Bazaar magazine. Uh, I kind of wanted to read it. In the second chapter, you paint a pretty vivid picture uh, of the, the beginning of the first BDSM organizations and the flourishing of leather bars, as you mentioned, in the 1970s. But the part that really caught my attention was your discussion of women's groups. Could you talk a bit about the role that BDSM played in the 1970s feminist sex wars? Okay, uh, absolutely. Um, oh, and, and on Bazaar, it has been reprinted. Uh, it's a German publisher called Taschen, uh, and they've reprinted a number of old sex magazines, and Bazaar is one of the ones they've, uh, they've reprinted, so you, you can get it. Um, but yeah women, yeah, women in the leather community had all sorts of problems, uh, both in terms of uh, if they were 
cruising traditional gay men's leather bars, uh, or if they were joining groups like Tess or Janice, right? So, um, yeah, most leather bars uh, excluded women. Uh, you know, there were a few uh, who could, in a certain sense, you know, prove themselves, assert themselves, uh, have male friends, uh, get them in. But there are relatively few of them who could do that. Uh, and even they would suffer from kind of problems, you know, in the bar, right? Comments of, you know, the fish have arrived and things like that. Something smells like, you know, something smells fishy and so on. Um, so they, they weren't, a lot, most of them weren't kind of comfortable in that environment. And within groups like, uh, like Tess or Janice, uh, there were other problems, uh, and particularly ill-behaved straight men hitting uh, on the women, uh, regardless of whether they're interested in them, regardless of whether they're, they're dominant or, or submissive, right? So kind of broader uh, problems in our culture, you know, uh, being exacerbated uh, in, in a BDSM environment. Uh, so increasingly women look to form their own organizations, and most of them are open to all women, um, you know, um, right, straight, bi, um, you know, um, you know, lesbian. Um, it starts in Janice. They form a women's only group called Cardia. And that then, you know, a number of the women in that group uh, wanted to be in a purely women's group uh, away from men. Uh, and they're the ones who form uh, Samoa. Uh, which has a number of important early members. Uh, Pat Califia, now Patrick Califia, a longtime uh, um, writer on, on sex and sexuality, longtime advice columnist uh, for The Advocate. Uh, and of course, Gail Rubin, right, involved in these organizations, right, uh, an important anthropologist, right, right, you know, it's around the same time that she's kind of uh, writing her landmark essays, um, you know, like Thinking Sex. And what Samoa discovered, all these early BDSM organizations had trouble finding places to meet, right? If you're going to have an organization, you have, to, you have to go somewhere. You have to have your, your clubhouse, as it were, meeting space. In the case of Samoa, they assumed that the growing number, kind of, they tap into, uh, as you mentioned, kind of the, the, the growing women's network uh, of uh, women's bookstores uh, and other kind of businesses catering to women. Uh, and instead, they found themselves excluded, uh, that uh, BDSM was condemned uh, as violence against women, as patriarchal, and, and so forth. Uh, and the women in Samoa uh, decided to push back and push back very hard. Um, you know, so rather than retreating and being quiet, in, in a certain sense, rather than being, say, like the Chicago Hellfire Club uh, of... Uh, just relying on their own resources and avoiding people. Uh, Samoa pushed back very hard. They had letter writing campaigns uh, aimed at women's publications, uh, like especially off our backs for long running disputes. And, and these disputes spread into uh, women's and, and, and lesbians magazines and newsletters in general, um, you know, all through the early 80s. Now, I suspect, you know, kind of part of what you're getting at, of course, is this culminates uh, at the uh, the famous conference at, at Bernard, uh, where Rubin is one of the speakers uh, and members of uh, women's anti-pornography groups uh, picket the conference. Um, so it is uh, a very big, very divisive discussion uh, within the women's movement uh, as to whether BDSM sexuality is appropriate, right? Whether, you know, the participants have internalized patriarchal violence. 
and the issue is never really settled. Um, it kind of dies down and, and resurfaces periodically. Uh, so you saw the debate resume again uh, right after the publication of Fifty Shades of Grey in um, uh, 2011, right? These same debates uh, come out. You know, are women, you know, acting out, you know, male violence, even if it's a, if it's a lesbian couple and such? Um, you know, what's interesting for the development of the BDSM community um, and again, something that caught me by surprise is that the women coming out of Samoa all then form, you know, occupy very important, very influential uh, places in the BDSM community that they actually dramatically shape how a lot of the important uh, BDSM organizations develop, uh, particularly the National Leather Association, uh, which for a long time insisted on co-equal male and female co-chairs uh, at a time when women may have represented 10, 15%, probably the organized BDSM community. You know, so a lot of the structures, a lot of the outreach, uh, a lot of the rhetoric inside the community comes out of uh, Samoa. It's a very influential group uh, that published two books, uh, most important, really the, the one that really caught people's attention uh, was Coming to Power, a collection of essays uh, and erotic stories and, and poetry and so on. Uh, the organization itself, though, Samoa, uh, fell apart, uh, at least in part because most of its members, uh, which is probably fairly typical of the BDSM community, uh, didn't want to be part of a politically active publishing apparatus. They, they just wanted to have a, uh, <laughs> have a good time and go to parties. So then you show us that BDSM groups proliferated in the 1980s, and you explain the process of unifying the BDSM community by the end of that decade. And I was wondering, um, what impact did the HIV AIDS crisis have in these developments? And the second question I would like to ask about the 80s is how did the focus on safe, sane, consensual come about? So two big questions. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's interesting because my original assumption, uh, and, and you do hear people say this, uh, that the BDSM community uh, becomes so organized uh, as a result of a, the HIV crisis. But as, as I looked closely at this and kind of looked at these dates, you see that it, it's, it's happening before, uh, right? Two really important New York groups are founded in 1980, so right before the AIDS crisis, uh, the Lesbian Sex Mafia, uh, which is actively involved in the, the counter-demonstrations at the Bernard Conference, and uh, uh, GMSMA, the Gay Men's SM Activists. So, that, so they're already, um, you know, these, these new groups forming in cities across uh, the country, uh, including one in Denver, uh, uh, where I lived at the time, um, you know, Denver area dominance and submissive. Um, but what HIV does is it accelerates that process uh, in, in a couple ways. Uh, first, it, uh, I think it dramatizes the important, really for the, the, the you know, gay community as a whole, that they needed to get politically organized, right, to raise consciousness uh, about um, a host of issues, but particularly um, AIDS, um, right? And that was certainly driving uh, Steve Madoff, who founded the National Leather Association in 1986. Um, but there's other processes kind of kind of pushing this too. Part of it is that the leather bars themselves were, were serving a very narrow constituency. Um, as, uh, as one person, uh, David Stein, kind of complained, it was basically, you know, the bars were the place where the reckless and the beautiful uh, hung out. 
Uh, and there were lots of people like him who were a little overweight and a little balding <laughs> uh, and, and wanted, you know, a place you know, that was open to everybody, um, not just the reckless and the beautiful, and also that engaged in, in more serious discussion of BDSM and even heavier BDSM play. Uh, again, very surprising. You think about uh, you know, the stories one hears about these bars was anything goes. Uh, and yet, if you look at the community's literature and their complaints, uh, they, they see the bars as a somewhat ta- a very sexual environment, uh, but in terms of BDSM activities, um, somewhat tame. Uh, so people are looking for an alternative to bars. They have organizational models uh, like Tess and Janice, uh, both of which either formed auxiliary chapters or uh, Tess had ambassadors in other cities that were kind of helping organize groups. Uh, The bars themselves are somewhat alienating to a growing number of people. Uh, And because of AIDS, a number of the most famous bars were shut down. Um, The Mineshaft in New York uh, shut down uh, during Ed Koch's administration. Uh, Catacombs, uh, very famous in San Francisco, shut down on its own before being forcibly closed. Uh, Other bars uh, did the same. So HIV plays a role in this and, and I think accelerates right, developments that are already taking place, this increasing organization of, uh, of the BDSM community, right? Uh, Dungeon Master Magazine, right? A, a magazine focused not on dirty pictures and erotic pictures, uh, but, but very specifically on BDSM technique, uh, launches 1979, right? So again, right, before, uh, before AIDS. Right. And the other question was, uh, how did the focus on safe, sane, consensual come about? <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Sorry about that. Um, yeah. Every, every early uh, BDSM uh, organization coined some kind of phrase uh, that, uh, um, yeah, that they used. It was, uh, uh, in part, as you said, right, it's a way to push back against uh, the people condemning right, BDSM to say, you know, we're not fascists, we're not Nazis, we're not, you know, we're not criminals, um, right? We, what we do, right, is, is safe. Tony de Blas and Dungeon Master starts using the phrase uh, safe and sane, which he may have just adopted because there used to be a campaign in the United States uh, to celebrate a safe and sane 4th of July, right? So for his generation, the phrase may simply have been in the air, uh, right. Have a safe and sane 4th of July. Don't get overly drunk. You know, don't blow up anything. Uh, don't hurt yourself. But other organizations had different phrases that lay like. And, and they're, of course, right. Consent very early, very quickly figures in all these discussions. Right. All these groups in a certain sense are, are taking in the 70s in particular a, a consciousness raising approach. Uh, and so they're constantly discussing, debating, well, what makes what we do different Right, what makes us not right? Jack the Ripper, violent criminals, and so on, uh, and they very quickly kind of focus on well, consent, uh, and you can find references to it in a few uh, BDSM publications, uh, certainly by the 1960s. But there are other more interesting phrases um, floating around, right? Some of the, the Samois uh, in, in its phrasing used the, the term non-exploitative, uh, which I think is is much more interesting, right? Already grappling with something that we talk about a lot today, right, is that uh, uh, consent is not necessarily, you know, a yes, no, right, question, right? Consent can be coerced and manipulated in various ways. But safe saying consensual 
once it was coined, it was coined by members of GMSMA, right? People who, who know Tony de Blas, who are reading Dungeon Master, uh, attending the parties uh, organized by the Chicago Hellfire Club. So they're getting the safe and sane from there. Uh, and consent uh, seems to be true of every BDSM organization. Very quickly created some kind of credo uh, involving uh, consent. And uh, GMSMA uh, is the one who kind of fused the slogan uh, and just began promoting it. And in its day, GMSMA, I mean, they, uh, they shut down a few years ago. Uh, but in their heyday, they were an incredibly large uh, BDSM organization, several hundred members uh, and incredibly adept at uh, fundraising. So for many years, they were the leading contributor, right? The number one contributor uh, to the Pride Parade in New York, yeah, to the Gay and Lesbian Resource Center uh, in New York, uh, and, and other charities. Uh, and so you had the, the largest, most effective uh, BDSM organization promoting the slogan. Uh, and it was uh, GMSMA, uh, several of their leaders, but particularly uh, Barry Douglas, who convinced the organizers of the March on uh, Washington to include, uh, for the first time, uh, an obvious leather BDSM, uh, you know, march contingent. Uh, they'd been banned. Uh, and this is pretty true of most uh, pride parades in the 70s, right? They banned visible participation uh, of leathermen. Uh, but Douglas got that contingent approved. Uh, and as part of that organizing, they promoted, right, they put safe, saying consensual in all the march uh, literature. Uh, so you began then seeing the phrase popping up in the National Leather Association's newsletters uh, and other publications. Uh, and then after the, the march was 87, uh, the march in Washington, 1988, there's a big gathering of BDSM organizations uh, in Dallas of all places. And that meeting, uh, there's a lot of nasty debates uh, that people are still angry about, but they all agree that safe, saying consensual is a good phrase. Uh, and, and that's the phrase the, uh, the community embraced uh, and promoted. Uh, and it's still the phrase most people use. There have been various people trying to challenge it, uh, and they've not gotten a lot of traction uh, for a whole host of reasons. I think safe, saying consensual uh, works for the BDSM community. Uh, and, and it does it in two ways. Uh, one is, of course, kind of externally, right? Leave us alone. Don't harass us. Don't arrest us, right? Don't condemn us. What we do, right, is safe, it's consensual, and it's sane, right? Pushing back against, you know, definitions uh, of alternate sexuality that condemned, right, BDSM activities, um, you know, in, in like the Diagnostic Standard Manuals of the American Psychiatric Association. Uh, but it also is useful internally, Right, that that once you're having people um, getting together, uh, having right dungeon parties, uh, play parties, they usually call them, where you might have dozens or more people, you know, mixing around, meeting people, engaging in BDSM activities. Uh, it gives you a standard uh, to kind of to police conduct, uh, to keep people safe, to keep your party safe. You know, so it works, like I said, both internally and, and externally, uh, and it's been applied. To things beyond BDSM activity. Um, I think one of the things that most struck me, it was just a, a letter I found by accident uh, going through uh, the National Leather Association's uh, papers, but it was a person writing in complaining that at the last convention, right, living in leather, leather they had been um, non-consensually subjected to cigarette smoke. 
right? So, so taking safe, saying consensual, right? What, what's used to kind of keep people safe in the dungeon, and then broadening that out, uh, I thought was very interesting to address other issues of, uh, of health and safety. You, you conclude the book by discussing the paradox of mainstream acceptance. Uh, I'd like to know what you mean by that, because that's sort of a, a discussion I've had with previous guests in this podcast. You know, we've been talking about what is gained and what is lost when a marginalized subculture goes mainstream. Oh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's... Uh... Yeah, for the BDSM community, this is a long-running debate. One of its uh, one of the best-known uh, authors, right, John Preston, uh, you know, writing uh, um, erotic stories uh, that feature BDSM, uh, you know, uh, and kind of rough sex. Uh, early on, saw this uh, the the community getting increasingly organized uh, and, and was appalled by it, right, and kept pointing out to people, but we're supposed to be outlaws. We're supposed to be sexual outlaws. How can you have a meeting using Robert's rules of order, right? If we're, right, we're, we're, we're you know, if we're outlaws, and I've been to some of these meetings, and, and they really do. It's uh, it's like some of my faculty meetings, <laughs> and not the more interesting ones. Um, you know, following Robert's rules of order, um, and that's uh, yeah. And as you said, I mean, it's true of any number of. Uh, of marginalized sexual communities. I mean, like we were talking about uh, a few minutes ago, right? Uh, pride parades, right? What are you allowed to, to do in a pride parade? You know, are you allowed to let it all hang out, right? And say, this is gay culture, right? Accept us as we are, right? Or are we all supposed to, you know, are you supposed to show up in a, in a jacket and tie and, you know, um, you know, look just like everybody else? And for the BDSM community, there are people who start feeling increasingly um, constrained, uh, by this, um, right? Complaining about that there is a uh, you know an SSC, a safe, sane, uh, consensual thought police, right? That uh, uh, right. The joke is right. Uh, you know, you know, um, my kink is okay, but your kink is you know you know should be illegal, right? People trying to within the community kind of demarcate what is or isn't acceptable, uh, and there's no. Uh, there's no solid agreement on what that is or isn't. Uh, so there's all sorts of long-running debates uh, in the BDSM community about uh, what is or isn't safe, sane, consensual. Um, uh, breath play, for example, right? Erotic asphyxiation, right? Restricting airflow to someone uh, to uh, um, all right to increase um, you know sexual pleasure. Uh, some people condemn it, or some people, of course, are doing it. Um, so within the community itself, right, the, these debates are there and, uh, and very active. But at the same time, right, members of the community would like their play parties, right, to be safe, to not have uh, uh, the police infiltrate and, and bust up parties, as was relatively common. You know, last raid that I think I, I tracked down was, was 2001, 2002. Um, so that's the plus side, right, of... Uh, of uh, you know the uh, you know kind of the mainstreaming of it is, is that there is less police harassment, um, but there's also right uh, there's a, a cartoon in, in a BDSM magazine um, that I, I ran across, and it's uh, it, it's a woman dressed as if she's interested in BDSM, right? So, so with uh, visible piercings, a collar, um, right, studs, leather. And such, uh, and, and you know, the word bubble coming from her says, "Could you believe that that guy thought he I was into BDSM, right? How could he think right such a thing?" Um, 
you know, and this is a long-running complaint in the community, right? That that people who dress the part uh, don't uh, don't act the part. But it's not. There doesn't seem to be any way to uh, to resolve it. There are people who are angered by this, uh, and there remain small groups uh, that kind of keep themselves at something of a distance from the organized community. I, I think specifically because this. Uh, there's a group founded in uh, uh, men's group founded in California. Uh, and, uh, and one of their early advertisements says, you know, uh, uh, you know, you know, leather and sadomasochism have become almost indistinguishable and, and, you know, we're changing that, right. We're putting a certain sense there, the, 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 the S&M back into, into S&M, right. To make it, they make it raw and raunchy and dirty and hardcore again, right. We're going to kind of, uh, de-civilize it, uh, if you will. Yes, and, and you mentioned here that with this mainstreaming came fragmentation, right? How, how did that happen? Okay, yeah, and that's, again, something I, f- I found very interesting. To a certain extent, uh, especially the, the mid-'80s, uh, and, and part of it, as you said, is being driven uh, by, by the community's political agenda, right? The recognition, right, that the BDSM community is very, very small. Yeah, much to their leaders' frustrations, no matter how many sex surveys indicate that perhaps 10% of people uh, may enjoy some kind of BDSM play or spanking, bondage, so on. Uh, it's a much, much smaller percentage of people who, who will subscribe to a BDSM technical magazine, who will join a BDSM organization, right? So they very early on recognize that, right, if they're going to have a, a voice, they need to come together. Uh, men's and women's groups, gay, straight, so on. Everybody need to form one cohesive community uh, to try to get uh, a larger voice, to try to be heard. Right, what Barry Douglas is trying to do uh, at GMSMA, right, participating in the March in Washington, uh, what Steve Madoff was trying to do, organizing uh, the National Leather Association, right, to take these small disparate groups, form a community. Uh, and it really was a very small community. Um, you know, uh, the largest BDSM convention uh, of the kind of early 90s was uh, 1994 in New York. It's for the 25th anniversary of Stonewall. And it maybe had 3,000 attendees, right? And and this was the event to go to. So again, the community as a whole, right, is being measured probably in tens of thousands, right? So they wanted to, you know, they they needed to, to band together. Uh, But uh, as you mentioned, right, having then achieved, right, a lot of their goals, right, that they've ended uh, police uh, harassment, that that a lot of the the negative stereotypes have have disappeared. There are people who are very open about their BDSM sexuality, right, that uh, that Fifty Shades of Grey, right, commonly discussed. And in the absence of an external threat, the community began fragmenting back into its constituent parts, Right. So instead of kind of the, 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 the pansexual ethos that was uh, very aggressively pushed in the 1990s, especially by the NLA, that, uh, that we should all be working together, uh, you know, politically, uh, but also playing together, right? right? That, that in dungeon parties, you know, was encouraged, for example, for gay men and lesbians, right, to participate in scenes together, not sex, but BDSM. Uh, these various constituent groups began breaking apart again, right? So straight BDSM groups form, uh, you know, women's only groups, uh, you know, more of them common, um, 
Gary Guybald and other leading figures uh, in gay BDSM organizations start talking about that, that, that gay men have given so much that they're losing something by participating in this large community. And it's time for them to pull back and focus on their own needs. Uh, and the absence of a major threat there wasn't a reason to bring people together anymore. I mean, one of Guy Baldwin's other crusades, and he speaks about this a lot, is he wants sadomasochists to stop using pseudonyms, right? To use their real names as, uh, uh, as he does, um, to kind of, to kind of expiate that last remaining, uh, shame of it. So, um, just to conclude, I wanted you to, uh, talk a little bit about something that you discuss here. You say that BDSM is one of the best documented examples of social construction of a sexual practice and community. This is, again, a, an important discussion, debate in uh, sexuality studies. Could you explain this? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that to me is one of the fascinating things about BDSM is the, uh, is the sheer uh, quantity of technical literature. Uh, you have publications whose sole purpose is to teach technique, uh, how to tie people up safely, where and how to beat them, uh, how to make whips, how to hide your home dungeon, right? So your parents don't discover it when they, when they visit you. Uh, so there's this vast, vast uh, technical literature uh, that is out there. Uh, and that as you then get uh, BDSM organizations uh, the standard format of the meeting, once they conclude whatever, you know, Robert's rules of order stuff, they, they need to get rid of, you know, vote on the budget or whatever, uh, is to have a discussion and some kind of demonstration of, of BDSM technique or BDSM related technique, uh, perhaps tattooing or piercing, but especially uh, fancy rope bondage is incredibly popular. Uh, you know, tying people up in interesting ways, uh, whip making and other, right, how to make your own restraints and such. Uh, BDSM equipment is not cheap. Uh, so there's lots and lots of, of discussion, demonstration of how to make your own toys or to, or to find what they call pervertibles, right? Something that's not meant for BDSM play that you can adopt. Um, and within this, you then, and, I, and you can go to conferences um, and literally watch the presentation uh, of whatever it is, uh, flagellation, fisting, and so on. Uh, and then later on, go to the dungeon uh, and watch people uh, doing this. And in fact, saying, no, no, the presenter said to do it this way. <laughs> so, so, you can, you, so you literally have the kind of, the kind of social construction of their sexuality, both in print and, and you can just watch it uh, taking place. Uh, uh, you can watch uh, new ideas and new trends uh, uh, spread through the community. Uh, when blood play right, uh, got popular, there's there nothing on it for many years. And then suddenly, right, you see a bunch of articles pop up uh, on cutting and blood play and how to do it safely on where to get your supplies and so on, uh, piercing, um, uh, long whips, right? If you, if you kind of look at most kind of pictures of BDSM activity, uh, the whips uh, are usually multi-tailed. They call them floggers. Uh, you know, they're short. They're meant to be used safely in confined spaces. Uh, but in the mid-90s, suddenly long whips uh, got popular, uh, as long as bull whips, right? Eight, nine, ten feet long. Uh, and a whole host of bullwhip experts emerged in the community, right? Did their demonstrations, um, and it actually became a point of pride uh, for some in the community to uh, to master uh, a long whip, which is a, it's a very difficult technique. 
Uh, and you can definitely put someone's eye out with one of those things. Uh, so yeah, um, as I say, you can you can literally see it uh, taking place in the literature, or if you uh, if you attend uh, the events, uh, it literally social construction. Uh, and you can see the flip side too, right? Where them trying to yeah trying to ban certain activities too, right? Don't do things. Right. So, so, you know, both, both education and, uh, and constraint. But I also uh, found it interesting how um, they're constructing the meaning of the, this practice and, and this community and, and changing the meaning through uh, the period that you cover here in the, in the book. Right. The, the, this process of mainstreaming is also part of that. Are you working on any new projects that you wouldn't mind sharing with us? Um, I, I continue to have myself in, in, in three different areas. So I'm, uh, uh, I'm currently, uh, editing a collection of articles that we hope to have done soon on, uh, on teaching history online. This, we started work on this right before COVID, uh, and then all my contributors got very, very busy. So we're a little, little bit behind uh, where we'd like to be. But obviously, of course, COVID underlines just how important it is to, to look at history education beyond, uh, beyond the classroom, right? To go online, right? As you do with this podcast. For the BDSM work, I am looking at going back to the archives and, and uh, perhaps looking at, at Tony de Blas, who I have only mentioned him a little bit, but he's an incredibly uh, formative figure in, in the community. He just dominates the community uh, for roughly 20 years uh, by publishing Dungeon Master and other publication. Uh, he had his own um, uh, BDSM toy company for a while, Samatopia Supply Company. And, and uh, again, one of the interesting things I found this, um, I may be showing my age, but when I was a kid, we built model rockets. And one of the fun things about building Estes model rockets is that when you bought the engines uh, for your rockets, they came with little tech notes that explain basic rocketry and aerodynamic principles, right? So you're, you're a kid, you're a young teenager, and, and you're kind of learning rocketry and you get examples of doing it. Uh, and, and Tony de Blas is doing the exact same thing with, uh, <laughs> with BDSM toys. He'd include uh, uh, little tech notes, instructions, right, how to do that. So, so I'm certainly looking at, at, at kind of following up this book uh, and, and perhaps looking even, even more closely right, at the social construction of BDSM sexuality and the role that someone like Tony de Blas and some other kind of publishers and educators uh, played in it. Uh, and when I get back to military history, I, I still want to write a book on uh, kind of focusing on kind of the 1950s uh, and how people uh, imagine the future of war. Um, you know, so uh, kind of jetpacks, uh, starship troopers, uh, that sort of thing. So three, uh, uh, three very different projects. Yeah, but they all seemed really interesting. I just wish your book was around last semester when I was teaching a U.S. history of sexuality class. I would definitely have uh, assigned it. I hope folks uh, will take a look at it. And it, it was very uh, useful for me. So, Steve, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Oh, I was happy. It was, it was a lot of fun. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I just spoke to Dr. Stephen K. Stein about his book, Sadomasochism and the BDSM Community in the United States, Kinky People Unite, which was published by Routledge in 2021. I'm Zeba Machado, and until next time. Music